You're listening to Accelerate Churches Podcast, located in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thank you for joining us. We pray you leave inspired, and this message helps you build your faith. We hope you enjoy this word from our lead pastor, Ernest Grant II. And so uh, we've been in this sermon series called Tongue Tied because we really, really want people to become more careful and thoughtful concerning their speech. Because uh, here's the thing is that your words are potent. Your words can either build somebody up or they can break them down. They have the power to to build up someone's self-esteem or they have the ability to stain somebody's conscience. And so our hope is, is that you're growing more and more in your ability to have, to have precise speech so that you can have this Christ-likeness that, Christ, that Jesus wants for us. And so I hope that this series has been encouraging to you. Again, I know that it's been daunting for some of you. Uh, I've had a lot of fun telling you to watch your mouth, uh, so that it's been good for me. Uh, but I want to focus on one verse of Scripture today. It's in Proverbs. I want to jump over a little bit all over today, but I want us to really hone in. This is Proverbs 18.21. You're very familiar with this. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So the question is, is how is death and life in the power of the tongue? And I think when we think about words, they have three ramifications, physical, emotional, and spiritual ramifications. From a, from a physical standpoint, we can think about how when a doctor advises a patient to have life-giving surgery, that's a physical standpoint, how a lawyer may provide a course of action for someone that's going through litigation, how even though the weathermen get it wrong sometimes, the severe weather warnings help you avoid real hardship and things like that. The words of a jury or the words of a judge really dictate um, someone's future. That's how we see words have the physical impact, but they also can have an emotional impact or emotional ramifications. Because think about it for a second. Think about some of the emotional scars that you and I carry around on a regular basis because someone said something to us in our childhood, and now we feel like we have to overcome that word that's been spoken over our life. So on on another note, words can be deeply edifying because what they can do is they can bring back dead emotions to life. Uh, They can cause you to care about situations that you didn't care about before. They can bring about self-confidence and allow you to be self-assured and a myriad of other things. But I also argue that words have what we can describe as a spiritual dimension. Because think about the gospel for a second. Think about all the things that, we, that, that Christians talk about. Think about the gospel. The gospel means good news in its essence. So in an ancient time, you know, soldiers would go out to battle, and they didn't have iPhones or off-brand Androids, and they didn't have those. They didn't have Twitter, Facebook, anything like that. So in order to get updated information, you couldn't scroll on your Instagram. There had to be a soldier that would run back from the battle and that would report the outcome. And so they were just, they were marathon runners that literally like dashed to the scene. That's why Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news. Because they're bringing the good news about what happened at this battle. And so the gospel, in essence is an announcement. It's an announcement of a word that Jesus has done what he said he's done, that he's accomplished our salvation and saved us on the cross and through the resurrection. And so some of y'all might be like, well, I don't, I don't really know what Jesus has saved me from. Well, one thing Jesus has saved you from is you. It's you. 
thinking that you know the best for yourself, thinking that you have all the best ideas. He saved us from us. He saved us from the wrath of God. And I would argue that he saved us from the penalty of sin. Because for every time we mess up or we do things and we go our own way, there is a penalty imposed. There is an infraction imposed upon us. And that infraction is eternal separation from God. But what happens on the cross is Jesus is like, nah, I'm going to pay their punishment. I'm going to experience the debt. I'm going to cover the cost so with my holy credit card on the cross of Calvary so you and I don't have to pay for it anymore. And how he tells us about this good news is through the use of his words. That's why we evangelize, and that's why we proclaim the gospel on a regular basis. Does that make sense, church? So in other words, there are physical ramifications, there are emotional ramifications, and there are also spiritual ramifications for our words. And so the first week, part one, I told you about some of the words we should avoid. The second week, we, I don't remember what we talked about. What did we talk about the second week? Ah, yeah, we talked about something good second week. Go back and listen to it. It was a word. It was a word from the Lord. And so, but what I want to do today is I want to help you get good and be practical in how you can use life-giving words. Somebody say life-giving words. How do you bring life-giving words? And so here's, here's the first point. Here's the first one. Here's the first characteristic of a life-giving word is that it's painfully true. Is painfully true. One of the characteristics is that of, of, of giving a life-giving word is that it true is true, even though it might be painful. This is what it says in Proverbs 27, verse 5 and 6. It says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Verse 26, verse Proverbs 27, verse 6 says this: the kisses of an enemy may be profuse, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, this is particularly true in the context of our friendships, that that one of the credentials or one of the qualities of a true friend is that they're going to tell you the truth, even though those those words may wound you, right? But see, the problem is, is that some of us are not holding up our end of the friend bargain because we would rather see our friend self-destruct rather than dealing with the pain of confronting them. Now, some of y'all are like, well, well, you know, I just do that because I'm conflict avoidant. Maybe, maybe people don't say that to me because uh, they just don't feel comfortable. Well, 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 let me just say this. Anybody ever been to the supermarket? Have you ever gone to the supermarket and grabbed something in one aisle and then a few aisles later decided that you didn't want that thing anymore? And so you're left with a few options, are you not? You can either get to the register and tell the person, hey, I don't want this anymore. You can actually go back and put it in its original place. Or what you can do, and some of y'all are wrong for this, is just to leave it right where it is. Take that pork roast and just put it right behind the chips. Take, that, take, those, take whatever it is and put it right behind it. You know you are wrong for that. And the problem with this, <laughs> the problem with this, is you're putting the right, the, you're putting items in the wrong aisle. And the same thing that applies to our shopping habits is the same thing that applies to our friendships and relationships. Some of us are placing friends, and where, some of, well, let, me, let me get it right because this is good. Uh, uh, we put people in the friend aisle when they should stay in the acquaintance and the associate aisle. 
Like, like just because y'all got a group text and just because y'all drink mimosas at brunch and just because y'all travel together, it does not mean that you're friends. Just because you eat lunch together and you go to work-related activities, that don't mean that you guys are buddies. Because what I think is happening is some of us are using the term friend too loosely. Just because somebody follows you on Instagram and Facebook doesn't mean that you're their friend. Listen, we got to get some time in together. To be my friend, we got to share some meals. I got to cry some tears. I got to express some frustration. And I need to know that you have unshakable character. That you won't mislead me. That you won't take advantage of me. That you're not just here for a free ride. I need to know that you love me. You don't get spooked by me when I'm at my worst. And you don't get jealous of me when I'm at my best. That's a true friend. On top of that, I need to know that you have unremovable or unmovable reliability. When I call and text you, I need to know that you're going to answer. And then more than anything else, a true friend is someone that's going to tell you the truth. See, because a true friend is less concerned, a, a true friend is willing to hurt your feelings rather than to see you hurt your life. And some of us don't really want friendship, we want followers. We don't want friendship, we want flattery. We want someone to tell us that we're, already doing, that we're always doing the right thing. But let me just tell you, you need friends. Because friends are like your side view mirrors. You have, you have side view mirrors in your car, and then you have that little mirror inside the mirror. That's so you can see your blind spots. And a friend will help you see, mm, you didn't come off the right way there. You didn't say the right thing there. No, that was nasty. That wasn't nice. They will help you see your blind spots, your pain points, your missteps, all of the things. What I'm saying is if you want to go far in life, you better get a true friend and not the little followers and flattering people that follow behind you. That's all I'm trying to help somebody do. Let, let, me, let me go on here. Let me go on. Here's a second. Add it. Here's a second point is that they need to be well-timed words. Well-timed words. Listen to this verse in Proverbs 25, 11. It says, a fitly spoken word is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Do you get that? See, many of us have the wisdom to know what to say, but we lack the discernment to know when to say it. See, you might have the right thing in your heart, and that should be something that you say, but sometimes it's not the right time to say it. Because when you say things, it's going to fall into one of four categories. Sometimes you're going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and it's going to embarrass you, and it's going to discourage somebody else. Sometimes you're going to say the wrong thing at the right time, and that's just going to frustrate somebody. Sometimes you can say the right thing at the wrong time, and it confuses them. But when you say the right thing at the right time, what it does is it encourages them. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, well, how do I know when is the proper time for me to speak and talk about this issue? I think John Maxwell gives us some really, really great framework for this. Uh, he says it like this. Number one, you got to be sensitive to time and context. Is, are you paying attention to what's going on right now? Like, like is that person... And the emotional state of being and a state of mind to hear what you have to say. Is, is this a public or a private setting? Can they handle your words? In other words, half of the battle when knowing when the right thing, when to say the right thing is just studying your surroundings. 
right? And here's another one, assessing the gravity of your words. Like if life and death is in the power of the tongue and it's going to have a lasting impact on somebody's psyche, then what that means is that you have to take some time to assess whether this thing is going to build them up and encourage them or whether it's going to break them down and discourage them. Here's another one, and I don't think we think about it like this, but I think it's important. Are you using the appropriate form of communication? Is, is this, here's what you have to ask. Is this better as an in-person conversation, or can it be handled electronically? If it can be handled electronically, should I call or should I FaceTime so that they can see my body language, my posture, and a myriad of other things? Should, should, if, if I'm going to do digital communication, how can I write this email in a way that it communicates my heart? How, how can I send this voice memo in a way? How can I write this text message in a way? Does that make sense, church? But on top of that, on top of everything else, if you decide that it's appropriate to have an in-person conversation, then you need to make sure that your body language is right. Make sure your body... Have you ever said to somebody, hey, how do I look? You're not really looking or listening to their words. You're looking at their body language and their cues, their nonverbal cues to determine because you can tell that somebody is lying to you by the way that they look. So my question is, is if you believe this is the appropriate time to have the conversation, is your body language disagreeable? Is your face scrunched up? Are your, are your arms crossed? Like, like, are, are, like, are you multitasking? Are you making it appear that you really care about what they have to say? Some of us, this is a trick that some of us need to do. We need to say what we need to say to that person in the privacy of our own home in, the, in front of a mirror. Just say what you need to say in front of a mirror. Practice your tone, practice your inflection, and all of that. Here's, here's what I'm saying. Like, like, if you work on that, it will show or prove that you are wiser than beyond your years. It's a hallmark of a life-giving word. Here's, here's the third one. The third one is grace-filled words. Grace-filled words. Look what it says in Proverbs 15, verse 4. It says, the tongue that heals is like a tree of life. Tongue that heals. So let me, let me ask you, with your words, are you spending more time healing people or harming people? Like everyone has been here, we've all ran and done something. You know, we ran as kids and then we scraped up our knee, did we not? It was awful. We cried a little bit. Some of us still have the scars on our left knee from falling and all that type of stuff. It's weird, right? And so, and so what happens is, is when you scrape your knee, you get all of these little platelets that come together. And what they do is they form a, a protective cover over the wound so that you begin the process of healing. And so that you don't experience, um, uh, you don't get any type of infection or things of that nature. And what I'm saying to you today, church, is that the same thing that applies to a scab also applies to your words. You can use your words like a protective barrier over someone's heart to help them heal from a past trauma. You can use your words as a means of encouraging them, of inspiring them. You can do it. And, and let me just tell you, there is no more life-giving word than these two words in the English. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, I'm not talking about those faux pas, those false apologies, right? You've heard them before, haven't you? Where, where, where someone expresses remorse, but they don't assign any guilt to themselves. They're like, oh, I'm sorry that I did. I'm sorry. I regret doing that, right? It's like, but you expressed emotion, but you didn't take on any assignment, right? Let let me give you some false apologies. Can I do that real quick? Here's a false one. It's the minimizing apology where they start the sentence out like, 
I was just. Like, I was just kidding. I was just trying to help. What, what they're doing is they're minimizing the hurt that they've caused you, actually deepening the emotional wound. Then you have the, this is my favorite one, the shift, the blame shifting apology. Right? This is when they, they, say, they say things like this. I'm sorry that you... Right? Like, I'm sorry that I, I'm sorry that you think that I did something wrong. Or I'm sorry that you feel that way about my past action. That's a faux pas. That's a false apology. Here's the one I was just talking about, the phantom apology. This is the, I regret. I regret that you feel upset about this. I, I regret that I made a mistake. Like, like telling someone you regret something, Uh, without assigning or taking responsibility for any of the hurt that you've caused will only deepen the wound in their heart. And so so those things cut deep. So if you want to use life-giving words, one of the things you got to do is offer a genuine apology. Now, I'm not talking about, it's not just a social nicety. What an apology can do is it can repair the harm done in someone's past. It's not excusing what they've done. But it is saying that, hey, I I want you to know that I love you, I'm sorry, I see you, I apologize, and I want to help you, right? What what an apology does is it will help you mend a relationship. Because I suspect that some of us have relationships in here that we've allowed to just break, break down because we refuse to say sorry for something that we've done to that person. And so maybe, like, what it does is it disarms them. It lets them know that I'm sorry that I harmed you. And it can't undo the action of the past. But what it can do is help them grow effectively in the future without that continuing to affect their life. Does that make sense, church? Here's the fourth one. Here's the fourth. The fourth one is a thoughtful word. I would argue (laughs) that there are probably four types of people in this world. There are those who think before they speak. Um, think while they're speaking, think after they speak, and then those who don't think at all when they're speaking, right? And, and this is difficult, right? Especially for those who think while they're speaking, these are external processors. And it's difficult because they're trying to seek to comprehend or understand something while they're talking it, very, it out. But what I want to encourage us to do is grow to be the type of person that thinks before they speak. Here, here it is. I got some, some verses for you. Proverbs 21, 23. It says, whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. The reason that some of us have so many troubles is because we have too many words. It's just too many words. Well, well pastor, what do I do? Like, bef- here it is. Before you let your tongue run loose, proverbially, hold your horses. Here's what I'm asking you to do. If someone says something that you don't agree with, that messes with your soul, that upsets you, here's what you can do. Pause. Just pause. Before you say anything, just pause. Practice the discipline of taking a deep breath because in that moment, you'll be able to decipher what you should say and what you shouldn't say. Because the truth is, is that all of us have said some things that we regret later. And once you say that thing, there's no bringing it back. You can't unsay it. Once you've cashed a check with your mouth, your butt has to cash it. Can I say that? I don't know if I can say that. I'm mourning. I'm grieving. I'm grieving. I've said that already. I'm, gr- I'm grieving, so just give me credit. <laughs> what I'm saying is, I know that it's not easy, but James says, listen, beloved brethren, let every man be 
swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. The problem that some of us are having is that we work backwards. We are swift to speak, slow to, slow to hear, and we are swift to wrath. We are always ready to fight. Who hurt you? Who hurt you? You didn't even let them finish their sentence before you were ready to fight. Like, like if you want to grow, I'm just encouraging you just to pause for a second. Here, I'm done on this one. Jay can come. And last one is an encouraging word. An encouraging word. Encouragement is not just, you know, pointing out something that somebody does right all the time. But what it is, is just seeing something in that person and saying what you see. And seeing them grow and seeing them mature and then you say it. This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just in fact you are doing. Like, like that is what we need to do. Build one another up with our words. And some of us are going to be better than that than others. But here's what you can do. One of the things you can do is it's the spoken word. It's just telling someone like, hey, man, I really love you. I appreciate you. I'm thankful for you. Right? Like you can write an encouraging note to them letting them know you care, getting a handwritten note, any of that type of stuff. But I think the biggest thing, and you guys have done great for me, particularly in this season, is the ministry of presence. Just showing up. Just sending a call. Sometimes the best thing you can do is sitting sitting with someone while they go through their pain. Right? And let me tell you what you don't do while you're doing the presence thing. Don't, comp- don't, don't engage in competitive complaining. Oh, you think that's bad. Let me tell you about what I'm going through. It's like, ma'am, I didn't ask you that. I didn't ask you that. And I also want to encourage you, don't do the Jesus juke. You know the Jesus juke. You don't know the Jesus juke? Okay. A, thank you. I, I, I shall. It's when, when, you, when someone says, man... I just feel so alone in this season. I just feel like I don't have anybody. And then the person responds with, well, you got Jesus. The Lord won't leave you and he won't forsake you. Right? That's the Jesus Jew. Or when somebody says, or when somebody misses out on a big opportunity, they thought they were going to have this opportunity or, or get this job or, or, or something was going to work out for them and it didn't. And then the other person says, well, you know, God's got a better plan for you. God's going to do it. I I get that. But what about when I'm crying in the hallway? Like while I'm waiting for that door to open, I'm still here crying in the hallway. What do I do with that? Like, like, like there is hope. There is hope in Christ. There is that all that is true. But at that moment, I'm having a human moment. And that's important because when you do the Jesus juke on people, what it makes them feel is a deep sense of shame. Because they cannot see the beauty in their situation like you can. That's the Jesus you. So I just don't want to encourage you today, friends. Like if you're going to be life-giving, sometimes it's your presence that really matters. But like, just be careful about how you do this thing. And I'll just say this. The most life-giving words that we have ever experienced are the words that we receive from Jesus. When he says that we're forgiven. When he says that we're healed. When he says that we're a part of his family and that we're included into the family of Christ. But the reason that Jesus can speak those life-giving words upon us is because on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, he got the silent treatment for God. Sky went black. Clouds covered the darkness. 
clouds covered the sunlight. And it was at that moment that theologians say that the sins of the past, present, and, and future were poured out on Jesus. And at that moment, he normally was in communication with his father, calling him father, daddy, Abba. But in that moment, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the beauty of those words was because Jesus was forsaken and abandoned, we were welcomed into his family. Because Jesus was accosted, you and I were acquitted. Because Jesus was framed for a crime that he didn't commit, you and I could receive forgiveness today. And I just want to tell you, one of the most life-giving words that you can give to somebody is when you tell them about that Palestinian, Aramaic-speaking Jew named Jesus. And you tell them that, hey, I, I know that you're struggling in life right now. I, I know that you're going through it. But you have someone that loves you, that cares about you, that wants to mend your broken heart, that wants to give your life purpose, meaning, and value. The most life-giving words that we can offer people is telling them about our Savior. And here's what, and maybe today you don't know Jesus. Maybe today, maybe you're joining us online and you're just far away. Here, here's what I want you to do. When you came in, you had a little card in your hand. It's a little connect card. Fill it out. Give us as much information as you feel comfortable with on the front and then let us know or indicate the next step that you'd like to take. Maybe you need to commit your life to Christ today. Maybe you realize that you've been trying to do it your way and you need to come to him savingly. You need to, you need to recognize that he is life, Lord, and life, Lord over your life. Maybe you've been wilding. I don't know if that's still the same colloquial phase, but maybe you've been going, doing stuff you shouldn't been doing and you need to recommit your life to Jesus. Or maybe you've been dating us for a little bit and you're like, yo, I like Accelerate Church, but um, I think it's time for me to take my, our next step. I want to encourage you to attend our open house. Let us help you discover the purpose, your redemptive purpose, so that you can walk in the life that God has for you. And lastly, maybe that might mean you need to sit down for a season and get refreshed and recharged. Maybe that might mean you need to join the dream team and put the skills and gifts that God has given you to work. Whatever it is, we want to see that dream in your heart come to fruition here at Accelerate Church. And so friends, why don't you let me pray for you and then we'll move on. Father, I thank you so much for all the brothers and sisters in this place. Thank you so much for the goodness of your grace towards us. Thank you that you reign above it all, that you ultimately have spoken the most encouraging word over our lives and that was forgiven. That was love. That was encouragement. Lord, we are a part of your family. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but we've been made alive in you. And so I thank you for this new life that we have in you, Jesus. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, I pray for all those who are taking their next steps today. May they be encouraged. May they know of the deep love and the grace that you have for them. We honor you and praise you in Jesus' name. Everybody that agree with that, say Amen. 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 Why don't you